This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Joshua Wirth talks about the courage to believe. Why should Catholics believe that Jesus is present in the Holy Eucharist? Why should we want to go to Mass? Well, let's find out. Father Joshua Wirth is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Rick Binder. Please note that this interview first aired in February of 2020. This afternoon, we have a great lineup. We're going to kick it off with Father Joshua Wirth. Mm-hmm. So welcome, Father Joshua Wirth. Thank you. Thank you. Would you open us with a prayer before we get down sure. to it? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We'll just uh, pray a prayer to St. Michael and ask him to bless this hour and this conversation. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. Do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking to ruin the souls. Amen. In the name Amen. of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thank you. Father Josh, how you been? Good, good. How are you? All right. So Father Joshua grew up in Hayes, well, mm-hmm. Shenton and yeah. Hayes area, went to school in Hayes Public Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, known him a long time, grew up across from what was my mom's homestead when she was right. a little girl and everything. And so got ordained 2000. 2009. Nine? Okay, yeah. 2009. Mm-hmm. Was immediately assigned to be the parochial vicar at Immaculate Heart in Hayes. Yeah. And then I got, remember what, what Bishop Coakley said. He said, you're going back to your hometown. Is that going to be a problem? I said, well, my uh, family's going to like it. I'll be available for all the holidays. I can't say I can't travel or anything. So they're going to like it. But my ex-girlfriends aren't going to be too happy about it. And they weren't. They weren't. So <laughs> Kind of rubbing salt in the wound, huh? Yeah, they, they thought they got right. rid of me. All right. So most of you, because he grew up here and spent time here as, uh, and then in Plainville, not far up the road as right. pastor up there. So been very instrumental in the Catholic Church in our area for a very long time. So many of you know him. But you also are responsible for starting the Double-Edged Sword shows yep. that are here on the radio. You wrote the mission statement for Divine Mercy Radio. Mm-hmm. And we're very much a part of getting this off the ground. Yeah. And you currently are at St. Bernard Parish in Ellsworth. That's right. And then you also spend a little time uh, on a voluntary basis at Ellsworth Correctional <laughs> Facility. Yeah, not, yeah. Not an, yeah, they let me leave. They let you leave each day. Yeah. You don't have to. And I also have another parish, St. Ignatius in Canopolis okay. as well. All right. Very good. Well, welcome, Father Josh. Well, thank you. Thank All you. Right. A lot to talk about here. The courage to believe. It seems like uh, it shouldn't take that much courage to believe, but in this day and age, it's right. getting more and more difficult. Right. And all the statistics show, you know, the Pew Research Center has found that it's really not a favorable thing to be Christian, mm-hmm. certainly not to be Catholic. Catholic Church is attacked all the time. Mm-hmm. And the statistics show that 69% of Catholics say they don't even believe in the true presence of the Eucharist, so they're not well formed they're not mm-hmm. well educated mm-hmm. and then there was a study that came out in October that said the nuns that's n o n e s have increased over the last decade to if i'm not mistaken they say it's actually the largest group of people out there now it's met, it's tied with the catholics yeah. so the nuns and catholics are tied mm-hmm. as the largest group yeah. out there yeah. so all right so what do you make of all of this well, I'm uh, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. I mean, this is a natural trend with any any country that um, that becomes prosperous. 
um, you see you see a couple things always happen. You always see um, people start to get away from religion. People stop to uh, it gets more secularized. People the suicide rate always goes up when as people get uh, more prosperous, and uh, the birth rate always goes down. So. In the 1930s, in the middle of the 3030s and everything, people believed, they relied on the church, they relied on God. And you would think dirty 30s and depression and, and everything else, Great Depression, that, that there'd be more suicides and, le- and less kids. No, they have big families and there's less suicides. So it just goes to show that God, God's ways are not our ways because God told us in uh, Proverbs 30, he told us that that um, you know, when you become rich, you're going to forget me. In fact, the the author of Proverbs is saying, "God, don't make me rich, lest I forget you and say, who is the Lord?'" Because that's often what happens. We get we get prosperous and we get secure in our own power, our own our own control of the universe, and we say, "You know, I don't really need the the teaching of the church. I don't understand it. I don't really want to research it." Um, I don't really need Christianity. I think I could do this pretty pretty strong on my own. So it's a natural trend that always happens as a, as a nation prospers. Um, uh, the most discouraging part for for that um, about the belief in Eucharist, one, we've been talking about the Eucharist our, our entire since the beginning of the church for 2,000 years, and, and there's a, a large percentage that are um, about 47 percent that don't know the teaching Catholics that don't know the teaching of the Church about the Eucharist that it's it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And but the most disturbing part I thought was there's 22 percent that know the teaching of the Church, but they just don't believe it. They just don't believe it. And that one is the hardest for me because what? How do you convince somebody? That this is what we, what we uh, believe, and it's what we teach, and it's what we believe. How do you convince them that that something needs to change in on their part, so that they have that courage to believe? And I think that it's really it really does come down to courage because Fulton Sheen will often say, "Don't argue with somebody," and you know if they say they don't believe in God, don't argue with them. Uh, Instead, ask them why. Why don't they believe in God? And you'll find out there's usually some kind of moral thing that they have going on in their life that if they did believe in God, now they would have a, a standard, a judge, that would judge what they're doing is not right. So it's easier for them to say there is no God that say that this is not right than to change what is not right in their life. And that's, that's the real work of the church right now is not – Another program. We need another catechism program. We need another, uh, you know, movement. We need another catechetical series or preaching series that tell people the the truth. We need a conversion of the heart. We need to reach out to people and say, "Why don't you believe this?" And you often find it's a it's a moral problem that they have that if if they did believe in the Eucharist, that they would see that what they're doing is not right. That they wouldn't be able to receive communion if. if they admitted the way they were living. Well, and you talked about courage. So the opposite of courage is fear. Mm -hmm. And maybe that fear of what if I can't change? What if I can't quit doing this immoral act? And then, so it's easier just to stay in that mode of, well, no, I don't have to believe that part because then my fears 
of not living up to it will be. And, and that's actually the wrong thing because the reason we believe is because we aren't going to live up without God. Right, exactly. Instead of thinking, well, I've got to meet this standard before God loves me. Mm-hmm. God loves me, period. Right. But the fear that he won't if he mm-hmm. – so I bring God down to a level of, well, mm-hmm. he'll – this God will love me because he's only this. Right. He's less demanding. Be, um, you know, if I don't believe in the church's teaching about the Eucharist, well, then it's just a symbol – and a symbol isn't that demanding. A symbol, uh, you don't get. Nobody asks you why you're buying American flag. They don't say, "Hey, what are you, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to, what are you going to do with that symbol of America? Are you going to burn it? Are you going to treat it with respect? No, you just go to Walmart or you go online, you buy yourself an American flag, and then you can do with it whatever you want. Uh, that's what a symbol is. You know, that's what we, that's how we protect a symbol, right? Which is really no protection at all. But the Eucharist is a somebody. Somebody that demands a reaction out of us. So somebody that loves us like uh, like God, like a father loves a son, and so calls us to something greater. So when we don't um, treat the Eucharist like a symbol, we have the Eucharist in under lock and key at the church, and if somebody wants to take communion to somebody, they got to talk to the priest, and he's got to question him. Why, why do you want to take the communion? What are you going to do with it? And uh, what are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with Jesus? And uh, and even when people come up in communion line, there is kind of a, not really a questioning, but a statement of faith, the body of Christ, amen. That we should, and I always tell kids to say amen. And, and so I know that you believe that this is the body of Christ because it's like a little testament of faith there. Do you believe this is the body of Christ? Amen. And and then in a way, that's that's us protecting the the Eucharist because it's not just a symbol; it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And so we got to make sure that we're um, living up to those standards that Christ has has laid out. You know, you mentioned that back in the dirty '30s, you know, faith was was strong, families were big, and mm-hmm. they had more struggles than we can imagine exactly. in materialistic things. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember having a conversation with my grandma and grandpa years ago, and. They were sharing stories of the dirty 30s. They were newlyweds, had two little children right through that period of time. Mm -hmm. And I made the comment, I can't imagine how tough that would be. I'm glad I didn't have to go through that. And this would have been in the mid-1990s. My grandpa, who didn't speak and say much, sat up very quickly and he said, pointed at me and he said, I wouldn't trade what you go through for what I went through ever. Mm-hmm. He said, we knew what we had at the end of the day. Right. He said, you have so much now you don't know what you have. Yep. And that sense of losing sight of God because it mm-hmm. gets lost in all the clutter. Mm-hmm. Back then, they knew. At the end of the day, God was the only constant they had. Yeah. And we're living off the fumes of, of their sacrifice. And they're really molding the faith and the country during that time because I'll say the 60s, the baby boomer generation, they they all had two parents that weren't divorced and they weren't in prison and, and they weren't addicted to opioids anyway. Maybe there was addiction to drink and alcohol, but mostly they, they all came from these intact families. And now kids uh, grow up and they got... They got step parents and they got step siblings and maybe their parents not even got married or their parents are in jail or their parents are uh, drug addicts or and they say you know um, I don't where is God I don't see him he hasn't affected my life anyway 
you know, I talked to um, my prisoners and I asked them one time, I asked them one time, uh, how many of them were from broken homes, divorced parents, uh, or single parents? You know, their parents never got married. And um, 86% of them raised their hand, and that's like the national average is 86, 88% uh, prisoners come from some kind of broken home, and and we think that it's gonna we're gonna have these we're gonna change the family, and it's not gonna affect the children at all. No, it has a huge impact on the children, and it has a huge impact on their faith because they say, well. My parents say they they're Christians, but I don't ever see them go to church. And I don't, I don't. And when we do go to church, you know, we go to Catholic church on Christmas, and they go receive communion like it's no big deal. So why is it a big deal? Must just be a symbol because you can mistreat symbols, and you don't go to jail, and nobody gets in trouble. And so they see this, uh, they see this going on in their life, and they say, God's never really done anything for me. And so it's we're still living off the fumes of the structures. Of the faith of, 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 we'd say the greatest generation, that World War II generation, but um, um, it's coming to an end where where we have to make a real course change, or else we're just going to maintain in, into decline. Well, the young people today that aren't in prison that just grew mm-hmm. up in that circumstance of no family, yeah, I think they're so hungry for that family structure that they're creating their own kinds of families and those aren't healthy families they're not as god designed those families but they're trying to make these families out of all different circumstances Mm -hmm. and that's not a healthy way to go about it yeah we need to get back to the design of god they usually try to make a family out of some kind of cause so like the climate change thing you know as much as we need to take care of the earth they turn it into a religion in some ways that they can bond with the other or identity issues i can bond with this this my family if they if they have the same identity as as me and so instead of our identity as children of god as our primary identity and brothers and sisters in christ now it's do you belong to the same political party or or sexual identity group or same activist group that's my family that's my religion that's in a way that's my god so the study also says that non-belief in the true presence of the eucharist is most prevalent among millennials so tell us what period of what is millennials right before the baby boomers or no, baby no, boomers mil- first then millennials no no millennials are the young ones right now so that's okay a little, well that says the, little mix your, up on the on, yeah. no my father is a baby boomer that's so. what i thought i'm a baby boomer right so it's, it's ba- baby boomer gen x millennial i'm right in between the gen x and the and millennial so it's the millennials that are that have the least um, belief belief yeah if I, I have the stats here under age 40 26 percent believe that's it's the body blood soul and divinity of christ 49 to 59, 27, so just a small increase there. And then six year older is 38% believe in the Eucharist. So not great, but it gets better as people get older. And again, I think that comes from a couple things. One, I saw a great comment about the old Latin Mass, or about today as well, but there's a great comment that said, you know, in the old Latin Mass, people didn't know what the priest was saying, but they knew what he was doing. And nowadays, they know what he's saying, but they don't know what he's doing. And so they knew back then what the sacrifice of the Mass was, that it was a sacrifice of Christ. He's dying for us, but he's not being offered to us. See, I think we get that confused nowadays. People hear the priest say, um, through him, with him, in him, and they see 
the priest um, holding up, we call it the doxology, holding up the body and blood of Christ and kind of lifting it out over the altar towards the people. But his eyes are kind of, hopefully the priest's eyes are kind of above. And we think that the, the sacrifice of the mass is being offered to us because we see the priest extending his arms out towards the people. But actually it's being offered to the Heavenly Father. The sacrifice of Christ is being offered to the Heavenly Father for the benefit of us, but to the Heavenly Father. And so people knew that instinctively from, they knew something important was going on in the old mass. They knew that um, it wasn't about them, it was about worship of God. They knew that there was something special when the consecration bells were rang, that, that Christ was present at that moment, that his cross was present at that moment. And there's also something to be said about the you know, the memorization that went on back then, just like they would have to memorize the multiplication tables, they had to memorize the Baltimore Catechism. Why? Be- you're not told, okay, here's the reason why you need to know two times two is four. They were said, you'll find out later, right? And so a lot of times with the Baltimore Catechism, they weren't, they weren't taught why they need to know that now, but you'll find out later. Maybe they were never told later, but... When they needed to recall those answers, well, what is the Mass? It's the unbloody sacrifice of Christ, right? And what is the Eucharist? It is the, the hidden reality of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And they were able to recall those things out of that memorization. Where now where we don't have the memorization of, of the Baltimore Catechism, we're told, oh, you're going to be told later. You're going to need to look it up on yourself. You need to do whatever. And people just never get around to doing it. So, and they never end up taking a class where they learn it. And the catechism, you know, on religious ed can be hit or miss. So, um, I think they knew it back then. And it's something you said about the, you know, the dirty 30s and everything was that they knew how to, that they planted a seed. You know, 50% of Americans were, were farmers back during the Great Depression. So, really, you only had to take care of yourself and your neighbor, technically, you know. Um, feeding them, and where now it's one percent are farmers, and or I think less than one percent in the last census. But as farmers, they knew you planted and then you harvested. You didn't get the immediate results. You didn't get a paycheck in two weeks. You know, it took a, a harvest season for you to get paid. And so there was a, a belief that if I learn this stuff now, it's going to benefit me in the future. I don't know when that that when it's going to benefit me. But I think memorizing a Baltimore Catechism, understanding what the Mass was, memorizing the responses as servers, altar servers had to do, and the nuns teaching the faith, I think that's why there's a high retention in those six years older that believe in, in the Eucharist than the youngers that have never been exposed to that type of memorization. Well, and I think that generation back then, they memorized and you knew they were going to learn it later because they had a need to. Yeah. Things were tough mm-hmm. and they had to, but this generation yeah. really hasn't had to struggle. Mm-hmm. And so now eh, we can put that on the back burner and learn it later. Right. And then we never get to it. We never get and to we it. Just, yeah get stuck in that mode of, why did I memorize all that? Mm-hmm. It seems like a waste of my time. Mm-hmm. And so we're not memorizing it anymore. Yeah. And like you said, unfortunately, faith formation, great people want to do good things, but mm-hmm. it is it is hit and missed, very inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And our best efforts aren't always good enough. Right. And right. that doesn't mean bad people. It just means mm-hmm. we need to, need to work harder. Oh. Yeah, Jesus, uh, 
Jesus said it's very hard to get into heaven and very easy to go to hell. And we, for some reason, have got that totally mixed up nowadays where we think it's the default and you got re- to go to heaven, then you got to be really bad to, to kick yourself out of that club. And uh, that's not how Jesus approaches it all in the gospel. He says it's you got to try, you got to pick up your cross every day, and you got to follow the road, uh, the narrow path. And that it, some are going to say, "Lord, Lord, we listen to your teaching in the streets," and He's going to say, "I don't know you. You never built a relationship with me. You never talked to me." Yeah, Father Fred made a great point. He said, "You know, Jesus didn't tell them you're going to hell for what you did. You're going to hell for what you didn't do." Right. Yeah. And all the things you didn't do, you didn't mm-hmm. really build a relationship with me. You didn't mm-hmm. feed the hungry. You didn't go out mm-hmm. and live the gospel like I asked you to. Yep. You just went through the motions of doing mm-hmm. the minimum and that's mm-hmm. not enough. Well, you said I'm a I'm a you said yourself I'm a baptized confirmed Catholic. You know, Jesus they said that to Jesus. Well, we're sons of Abraham. He said that could, God can make sons of Abraham out of these very stones if he wanted to. He can make baptized confirmed Catholics out of the very rocks if he wanted to. But us actually doing the participation of 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 going that narrow path and carrying our cross, that's a different story. Yeah. So, uh, EWTN has an article that they posted on the web, and it's the five myths of the Eucharist. Five myths of the Eucharist, probably more than that, but five mm-hmm. generally consist. Can you know you talk about each of these? The first one, and sadly, there was a period of time when it was the Protestants say, "Well, we have Eucharist. It's it's yeah. just a symbol." Yeah. And well, no, it's not. It's the real presence, yeah. the true presence, of body, blood, soul, and divinity, but. All the statistics show that a high percentage of Catholics are in that place now right. where they think it's just a symbol. Yeah. And, um, you know, so the Eucharist is just a symbol. That, of course, the, an- the short answer is no. The long answer is no. Right. But there's more to that. Um, act- if, as the world speaks about symbols, Thomas Aquinas, actually, strangely enough, he said the Eucharist is symbol par excellence, meaning that it is what it represents because it's not the glorified body of Christ, right? So it's it's uh, Jesus hidden hidden underneath what we look to see bread and wine, but hidden his substance, you know, transubstantiation is, is tr- trans change sub under, all right? So under there's a change under in the substance that it's the substance it's it's everything of Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, except his glorified body. And so our our senses can't pick it up. Microscopes can't pick it up. But we believe what he says when he says, this is my body, that he was being literal, not figurative. He wasn't just making a metaphor, analogy, or, or you know, one of his other uh, parables or anything like that that didn't happen, saying, this is my body, that he change the substance of it underneath there. And uh, the example I always use is somebody that goes off to war can come back looking totally different. You know, maybe they're, they're missing arms or legs. The outside appearance has changed, but the inner person, even though they're not able to communicate, is the, is the same. So take that idea of the outside changes and the inside is the same and then totally reverse it. That the, the outside now, when the, those words of consecration are said over over that bread and wine. The outside stays the same, but the inside, the substance radically changes into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Everything that is Jesus except his glorified body. And, um, and then we start to understand 
wow, what a what a humble gift he's made of himself. That not he didn't just uh, walk among and be among the apostles, and the rest of us just got to you know pray to him, and we can't ever be in his presence. But he he's really placed himself in the hands of sinners again, and in our midst, and under our control, and under our power, even more helpless, even more veiled than he was last time. And it's our responsibility now. We, we are in the same presence of Christ as the apostles were. How are we going to treat him? Are we going to be there when he calls us? We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, computer, smartphone app, or on Amazon Echo, please know we'll be right back with more from Father Joshua Worth talking about the courage to believe. We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. The Courage to Believe with Father Joshua Wirth. Rick Binder conducts the interview. Visiting with Father Joshua Wirth, talking about the courage to believe, specifically believe in our faith, believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and to live that well. So we're talking about the five myths. First myth is that, well, it's just a symbol. It's not real Mm -hmm. and everything. But then the second one kind of goes along with that, that, you know, it was just a symbol, but this Catholic Church just recently kind of came up with this idea, hey, let's mm-hmm. let's change this, that this is something new that just Catholics came up with recently, Yeah, never really been part of Christianity. Yeah. Protestants are very hindered in the fact that they don't have the church father. So you can, you can read the Bible, which is great, and you can see what um, St. Paul says about the body and blood of Christ and anybody that that eat or drinks it without examining themselves is liable to judgment of the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, well, what does he mean by that? Well, you can go to the first century Christians, what we call the church fathers, and some of them that studied at the feet of the apostles and see what they wrote, right? Now, this isn't divinely inspired, so there could be some error in there, right? But we could see how they lived, we could see how they wrote, we could see how they talked, we could see what their faith was, and their faith was always about the Eucharist is is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And, and there was no symbolic language, they were not saying that he, Jesus was being figurative in that. And this has been the downfall of, of many Protestant scholars who have tried to look into the church fathers and find, find what they believe that it was just a symbolic a gesture that Jesus was doing. And they go back to the church fathers and, and they read and they can't find it and they find the exact opposite and they go, wow, these, these early Christians sound really Catholic. They don't sound Baptist. They don't sound Presbyterian. They don't. And then, so the real, the only change that happened was in 1500 when, when, uh, when Luther, he changed it from, he said, no, 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 it's not transubstantiation, it's consubstantiation. So they believe, Lutherans believe it is the, the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ, but they've left apostolic succession for one, so they're not actually confecting the Eucharist. And then two, they 
they believe in consubstantiation that it's intermingled with the reality, the substance of the bread, and then it leaves the the substance of Jesus leaves. So I, I you know, as part of my training, you have to do some ecumenical stuff. And I was doing hospital ministry with a Lutheran minister, and and they were use grape juice and and the and the bread, and they would say the prayers over it. And they'd give out communion. They'd say the body of Christ, and people would say, "Amen, I believe it." You know, I didn't receive because I wasn't. I'm not Lutheran. I'm Catholic. And then when the when it was over, they didn't put under lock, put the put the communion under lock and key in a tabernacle. They just threw in the trash. And even though I knew it wasn't Jesus, I was like, "This is just a terrible." Even if it was a symbol, this is terrible. You know, just to be taking the wine and throw it in the trash, just taking the the host and throwing in the trash. And so, no, this was. And then from from Luther, it got even more symbolic where. It was. It's just a symbol. It's a very high symbol, like a flag. But that you know, just like we say, a, a flag doesn't con- contain the Rocky Mountains. Then uh, you know, it wouldn't contain Jesus. The symbol wouldn't contain Jesus. And so you could really do with it, and and it never made any demands on you, as I said before. Which that's why you get farther and farther away from the gospel truths, as you get farther and farther away from the teaching that's the Eucharist, because the Eucharist puts demands on you where a symbol doesn't. Well, in those early church fathers, they went to horrific deaths as martyrs yeah. protecting the truth of the real presence of Christ in in the Eucharist. Right. And one of the things that Romans were bothered by was the idea that they were cannibalistic. Right. And so they didn't want anything to do with cannibals, so mm-hmm. they, they were just slaughtering them right and left. Mm-hmm. And the early church fathers, I mean, they could have easily said, oh, no, hold on, you know, yeah, yeah. it's just, just a symbol. Right. But they didn't. They nope. stayed with that all the way through. Exactly. So, all right. So moving on, another myth. And it says here Catholics believe, but I also believe a lot of Protestants accuse Catholics of believing this. Right. Or accuse us of doing this, that we are re-sacrificing Jesus over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Every time we have Mass, we're re-sacrificing him. Yeah. And it's like the first sacrifice wasn't good enough, it wasn't mm-hmm. enough, so we have to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And that that's a myth. Help us understand that. Yeah, I clearly. think the myth comes from, you know, that we have, we offer Mass for certain souls in purgatory, you know, Mass intentions. And so it's like, well, if we're offering, if I'm offering this mass for this person, this mass for that person, those are two different sacrifices. That's how, you know, how our human brain works. If there's two different actions, there's two different things, right? But no, the the sacrifice of Christ in a mass is just one sacrifice made present over and over and over again. You know, I think of that line from St. Paul where he says, I am making up in my flesh what is lacking in the sacrifice of Christ. Well, hold on a second, St. Paul. What is lacking in in the sacrifice? It was a perfect sacrifice that encompassed every sin and every soul. So what was lacking in that sacrifice that you have to make up in in your own life, in your own flesh? And the difference, what was lacking from the sacrifice of Christ was that St. Paul wasn't there. I wasn't there. You weren't there. And so how, and Jesus knows we can't travel through time and cross oceans to get to that spot. You know, that was a real test of the apostles' faith that were you going to be there at, at the sacrifice of the cross? And we can't travel back there and pass that test. So Jesus brings the test to us. He brings the cross to us. He brings it to wherever Mass is said, 
the cross is represented, is made present at on that altar. And so that's why it's so important. People are just like, oh, Sunday, Mass, I'll, I'll celebrate God my own way. Or my, no, that's Jesus on the cross. And you're being tested. As, every soul is being tested just as the apostles are being tested just by the people that were walking by, just like Simeon and, and his sons. And his sons end up being some of the first bishops of the church that are you just going to go about your daily business or are you going to be present at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? And and that's our test. That's our test every every Sunday, every weekend, is are we just going to take this hour for ourselves or are we going to bring ourselves and our family to that sacrifice and then take our flesh and all of our our hopes, desires, worries, concern, and, and put it on the cross and say, Jesus, give me your grace. You know, I give, I offer towards so much more than just the bread and the wine and, and the money that we donated. It's, it's our hopes, desires, fears, and worries, our sins, our venial sins, our, our, our struggles, our prayers, and we're putting them all, we're, we're making up in our own life what is lacking in the sacrifice of Christ because we weren't there, but on Sunday morning, whenever we're at Mass, we are there. And I think the difficult part is we are confined in our own human mind, mm-hmm. so we're stuck in time. Yep. And it's hard for us to understand God is not confined by time. Right. He is all time. He is right. everything. So he sees the one sacrifice of Jesus. The yeah. Father sees the one sacrifice of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And us gathered every time we gather at yeah. that one sacrifice. He brought, like you said, mm-hmm. he said, okay, I know you can't get to me 2,000 years ago exactly. in that place and that time, but I can bring it to you. And it mm-hmm. is just me doing this the one time. Right. But I'm welcoming you to be part of it now. Yeah, exactly. Every yep. time. But that takes that courage to believe that. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to believe that God can perform miracles. Mm-hmm. We want to believe all of that, but why can't we? Have right. the courage to believe that well, he can also do this. Yeah, that's the that's the other thing that always gets me about uh, you know that Eucharist is just a symbol. It's like, well, if it's just a symbol, if Jesus, if God can't do that, how is it I can conceive of something greater, a greater gift than what God's given me, and uh, you know, a symbolic Eucharist? It's like I can conceive of Him giving Himself every time on the cross and in, in in the Mass. I can conceive of that, and you're saying, but God can't conceive of that, and He can't, and He doesn't have the power to do that, and and so sad to me. I mean, I've been to, a, you know, Protestant services and and where they have communion, and and I've got teary eyed, and it's not out of joy. I'm just like, wow, this is just a, a shadow, an echo of of the cross, where I could actually be at the cross. These people don't even know what it's like to be. At, at a mass where you're really in the presence of Jesus. This is just an echo that's echoed throughout all of, all of human history, yes, but it's not the voice. It's, it's a bouncing around of the voice. And yet I want to believe that at some deep down level they want the truth of the Eucharist. Yeah. They just can't have the courage or bring themselves to get there. Yeah, and again, it makes, it makes demands on you yeah. that – you have to, before you can say amen to that communion, that you're in union 
with the truth, which is Jesus, which is his teachings as well, that if you love me, you're going to follow my commandments. Well, he said about remarriage, he said some pretty strong things. He made it even harder for for guys, you know, and women to, you can't not just commit adultery, but you can't even have lust in your hearts, right? You, it made it harder for people that are angry. It's, and it's not just you can't kill somebody, you can't even be angry at your brother. And so he made it so hard and so demanding that we really need to beg for his mercy. And that's why every beginning of every Mass, we're saying, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord. Have, we're begging like, a, like a, a prisoner in front of the judge. We're begging for that mercy because we know that that, that um, Eucharist, Jesus makes such high demands on us that it, to be in full union with him, it, it costs us a lot of our selfishness. So fourth myth. Uh, is it acceptable? It's acceptable to use grape juice instead of wine or goldfish instead of. Oh, okay, so uh, is, it's acceptable to use grapefruit. That's a myth. Help us understand that. Well, it's it's a myth for for Catholics. It's not a myth if it's a symbol. If it's a symbol, you could use uh, pizza rolls and and soda pop or whatever you want to use. If it's just a symbol that it's. Uh, but if it's if it's which as Catholics believe we. We believe it's uh, it's that it's Christ. We want to do as closely to what Christ did as possible. We don't want to we don't want to play with the recipe at all. So we want to make sure that it's an unleavened bread, wheat bread, right, and that it is uh, it's actual wine, alcoholic wine. Uh, even has to be a certain percentage. I tried looking it up one time what it has to be to be altar wine, and I just. It was too confusing. I just leave it up to the professionals, and I just buy altar wine from the companies. But we want to get it, and it has to be a male. You know, saying those words of consecration. It can't, um, and it has to be ordained male. Okay, baptized and ordained and confirmed male. And because at that moment, Jesus is borrowing the voice and the hands of the priest. That that it's his words that are saying that. That's why the priest doesn't say. And Jesus said this. He said, and Jesus said, "This is my body." He goes, "This is my body." So the Jesus is borrowing the the vocal cords of the of the priest. He's borrowing the hands of the priest. That's why they're anointed and consecrated. And and it's we're at the Last Supper. We're at the cross. All that is being made present right at that moment. So we want to get as close to it as as we can with the recipe. We don't want to play around with it at all. I remember one time I was my first year of college. I was randomly matched up with a roommate that was a Baptist, and and he was a teetotaler, and there's no alcohol and stuff like that. And and uh, and I said, well, even Jesus turned the water into wine, and he said, well, that's because wine was more pure back then. Or that's that's how you got rid of all the germs is by drinking something with alcohol in it. And I was like, well, why didn't he just make the water pure? <laughs> it's like if he has that power, right? He didn't make it into grape juice. He didn't make it. And so when he picked up that that cup of wine, it's like uh, that chalice of wine. We don't want to mess around with that recipe, right? Spe- specifically, wine. The, here here it is some Catholic symbology. The wine is crushed. Okay, the grapes are crushed to create the wine. And the um, the bread, you know, the grain is grounded down, right? Mm-hmm. So he's saying, he's also saying, this is my body grounded down for you. This is my blood crushed for you, and and that 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 is symbolic language. But the reality is that 
that's his body and blood, and we wouldn't want to miss with our recipe at all. And uh, we want to get close to it as we can. And, and some people will say, oh, well, then that's why you know, they all need to be Jewish and they all need to be priests only be circumcised and stuff like that. No, that that's not what determines maleness or priesthood. But God chose to be a male. And so and there's a different there's a different spirituality behind that. So as I heard Cardinal George say one time, it's not that it's not that um, women can't be administrators or preachers or, you know, sometimes Mother Angelica was one of the best preachers and people listen to Mother Teresa. She can get bishops to do what she wanted. You know, she could boss them around if she wanted to. And it wasn't that. It's just that a great as a woman is, she can never be a good husband and she can never be a good father, just like I can't be a mother or a wife. Yeah. Right. And so there's something about that fatherhood masculinity, something about that husband masculinity, especially in Christ. We always talk about himself being the bridegroom that that only can be represented by a man. So that's why we don't stray from that teaching. And we're not going to stray from the other other aspects of of the Last Supper and the cross that we're we're going to try to stick it close to as we can. But if you're think it's all symbolic well then could be a woman could be a pizza roll could be it could be grape juice could be all that stuff because it's all symbolic and you can mix and match all those things around so the past 50 years have seen changes in the way mass is presented Mm -hmm. it doesn't change the actual what takes place there right but the way it's presented the way the priest faces the language that Mm -hmm. english versus latin that kind of thing a lot of things have taken place is it your opinion that this has contributed in any way to the misunderstandings and misconceptions we have? Yeah, I think I go to back to that that quote. We know we know what the priest is saying now, but we don't know what he's doing. We don't know that he's offering up the sacrifice of of Christ on the cross to the heavenly Father. And this is where I think um, priests need to look at the different traditions and, and options of the church and find those that point to. It's like we've talked. I think, you know, these statistics say some people don't know the teachings. I'm more worried about the ones that they do know the teachings of the church, but they don't believe it. Why they don't believe it? Because they don't see it. They see the priest acting as if the Eucharist was just an ordinary object. And so they don't understand why, if it is a body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, why the irreverence around it? Why, why the casualness around it? So getting serious and finding those traditions in the church that point towards the Eucharist, the liturgy is pointing towards the Eucharist, then let, let um, Jesus do all the work. You know, this is, this is a passion of mine right now is just trying to find those traditions in the church. Like, for instance, something any priest could do, there's no reason not to. And in fact, it's something we did all the time. But I went every in Plainville, Stockton, Canopolis, and Ellsworth, I go into, back into the sacristy and I open up the closet and I find these little communion patents, server patents that the servers would hold underneath people's tongues back in the day or their chins and to catch any, in case the Eucharist would fall or catch any fragments from the Eucharist. And, and I train the servers how to, how to do it. And, you know, I have a bad analogy about it, but it's about the closest I can, I can get is that we want to imagine your your grandmother that you love is doddering a little bit and maybe about to fall over. You're not going to 100% be able to stop her in every situation from falling over. But what can you do to lessen that? You know, put in a handrail here. And so we're we're trying to make sure that 
we're going to try to lessen the chance that Jesus is going to fall on the ground. We're going to less of a chance that particles are going to fall, less of a chance. And I tell, you know, I explain that to the servers, and it's worth 100 homilies on the Eucharist. Because I'm not just saying it's Jesus. We are acting as it because it's Jesus. We're acting in a way that shows that it's Jesus because it's, it's Jesus, and we want to protect him from falling on the ground just like we want to protect our grandmother from falling on the ground. And any priest can do that, but I don't know why. I think some priests think, well, I can't 100% do that all the time, and so I'm not going to do it at all, which I think if you can lessen the risk a little bit, that'd be great. But there's, there's so many more things like that where there's no reason why we can't have these little, these little traditions that point towards Jesus and Eucharist and then let them fall in love with Jesus and Eucharist and holy hours and, and Corpus Christi processions and Eucharistic devotions and kneeling, for, making available kneeling for communion if they want to. You know, that's, that's also a right of people to, to do. And all these things that point towards not just words, hey, this, this is Jesus, but we are living and acting that truth, that teaching, and pointing towards it. And I think if we do that more and more, Jesus will just do the work for us is my, my greatest hope. And an important aspect of that is the education that goes with it, mm-hmm. the explanation. Now, that requires an openness on my part to listen and learn yeah. and to grow. So education, the, the speaker, the presenter can be great. Yeah. But if I don't want to receive it, mm-hmm. so it's, it's a combination yeah, there's a lot of, of – There's a lot of territorial stuff that I don't understand. I mean, I try to give people the benefit of doubt. You know, they'll, they'll say, well, we were told that we were so afraid – as servers to drop the Eucharist that I don't want my kid to suffer that same fear, my grandchild to suffer that same fear. And I, and I just try to placate that fear and say, well, I, I teach kids, listen, grandma's still going to fall every once in a while. We, can't, we don't want our loved one to fall, and we're going to try it, and we're going to try to help them up, and I'll receive communion. I'll, you know, and I don't care about the germs or anything like that. I'll, I'll pick up Jesus, and I, I will consume him. And we'll and we'll go about it. You know, it's not going to be the end of the world. God's not going to strike you dead. But we're going to try to find these different ways. And there's this territorial thing where it's, I don't like that from my youth, and therefore I don't want that from my children. And but we can't keep on doing the same old thing. We can't keep on doing the same old thing. We're losing six or seven people for every person that joins the church. We can't just maintain the client anymore. We got we got to start pointing towards Jesus, teaching that stuff, yes, but also letting down some of those resistances where it says, no, I didn't need that teaching, so therefore nobody else needs it. Right. Andy, we're almost out of time. Any final thoughts? I think the other thing I want to say is, is you know, just one, we can all look at ourselves and am I living up to, to – the ideals and teachings of Christ before I receive communion, and and calling people into the count that also another way of pointing that that it really is Jesus in, in Eucharist is that if we know somebody that's not living that, that we we try to say hey because this is the teaching of the church you shouldn't receive communion until we get this figured out you know so if they're living uh, if they're married outside the church if they're living with a boyfriend girlfriend if they're in a you know, whatever it may be, that's an obvious outward kind of appearance that, listen, or, you know, politician that, that is supporting abortion. Whenever, we're, whenever we tell them, listen, let's not receive communion until we get this figured out, 
we are defending Jesus in the Eucharist because, and we're pointing to him in the Eucharist because he, we don't want anybody to take a medicine that's going to be harmful for him. Eucharist is medicine, but it's like a blood thinner. And if you got a mortal sin, mortal wound, bleeding out, hey, just take whatever medicine's in the cabinet, it's blood thinner, it's going to make it worse. It's going to make it harder for them to convert. And so just reminding our family and friends, listen, you guys are living together. You shouldn't come up to communion. Hey, you're married outside of church. You shouldn't come up to communion until we get this figured out. I don't want you to be away from communion forever, but let's figure that out. And priests, uh, of course, need to do that as well by privately or private if they know about a situation privately telling them, let's not, hey, I'm going to ask you not to receive communion until we get this figured out and worked out. And, and that's another way to. If we really believe that's Jesus, then we don't want this person to take the wrong medicine and, and it's going to harm them. Instead, we need to we need to follow those teachings of the church as well. Yeah, it's not a punishment denying. It's, right. It's a recognition that it's it's of great value and great worth. And we need to yeah. present ourselves. If it was a symbol, we wouldn't care. Right. But it's not a symbol. It's it's a person. It's Jesus. Yeah. And we don't I don't want anybody to approach him out of union with his truth because he is truth and it's going to be detrimental to their soul if they so it's a loving thing to say listen you can't do this yet i want you to do it sometime in the future but right now we got some things we need to fix fix up so that you're in union with the truth who is christ who is the eucharist and i'd be happy to talk to you about how we can fix that right exactly not just say you got to go yeah let's fix it yep so very good father joshua always great to see you all right thank you god bless you for what you do thank you Thanks for tuning in to Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Whether you're listening via radio, computer, smartphone app, or Amazon Echo, we appreciate you listening. If you'd like to comment on this show or have an idea for a future show, email comments at dvmercy.com. Or if you can help support these airwaves and help save souls for heaven, go to dvmercy.com and click on the Donate tab. You're listening to the Network of Stations of Divine Mercy Radio, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, 89.1 KGOH Colby, 101.7 KJDM Lindsborg Salina, and where it all began, 88.1 KVDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart.